It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. We've been discussing skeptical attacks against theism itself. In episode 59, I said that the campaign against theism can be seen as a three-pronged attack consisting of one, the supposed disproofs of God offered by various atheists throughout history, two, atheist criticism of theistic arguments for the existence of God, and three, the problem of evil and suffering. My intention is an attempt to confront and thwart these three attacks systematically. In the last episode, I refuted disproofs by David Hume, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Bertrand Russell. There are, of course, other arguments against God's existence. One in particular is prominent now and has existed for about 40 years namely an argument by Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. Dawkins, the former Oxford biology professor, author of several popular books, an arch-evangelist of atheism, calls this argument the central argument in the book, The God Delusion. Many acclaim Dawkins as a supreme expositor of evolutionary biology. Alistair McGrath, in a critique of the God Delusion in web.physics.wustl.edu, said Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, set the standard of how scientific ideas should be presented. It completely enhanced me in my high school years, he said. I can hardly think of a more contrasting figure to Dawkins or a better apologist for theism than Alistair McGrath. This atheist-turned-Christian professor of historical theology at Oxford holds three doctorates from Oxford, one in molecular biophysics awarded in 1977, the second in theology in 2001, and the third for research in science and religion and natural theology. So he possesses credibility in science equal to that of Dawkins, but also the dual credibility in religion that Dawkins definitely lacks. McGrath authored the book Dawkins' God, Genes, Memes, and the Meaning of Life in 2004, and thus is familiar with Dawkins' other writings. This fact is especially helpful for calling Dawkins to account for his conclusions in The God Delusion. In his critique, 
in that website. McGrath adds, for all his proven talent at explaining evolutionary biology, Dawkins does not lay out philosophical arguments in a clear and persuasive way. He mixes up different arguments in a single exposition, makes circular arguments, and does not maintain a clear distinction between arguments against the existence of God and refutations of arguments for the existence of God. Moreover, he systematically over-relies on scientific theories in confronting philosophical arguments. In the book, The God Delusion, the proposed existence of a personal God, which Dawkins calls the God Hypothesis on page 31, becomes an important theme in his book along with truth, morality, and religion. Belief in God, he argues, not only qualifies as a delusion, but a pernicious one. He defines delusion as a false belief held in the face of strong, contradictory evidence. On a scale of one to seven, where seven is certitude that God does not exist, Dawkins rates himself a six. He says, I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable and I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. In chapter 3, Dawkins' first target is a criticism of Thomas Aquinas' five proofs for the existence of God. One, the unmoved mover. Two, the uncaused cause. Three, the cosmological argument. Four, the argument from degree and five, the teleological argument, or argument from design. To Dawkins, these arguments are simply ridiculous. He dismisses the first three of Aquinas' five proofs simply because they seek to answer the problem of infinite regress by proposing God as the solution to terminate it. He apparently does not understand that the ways two and three are not the same, making his claim that they all lead to a termination of infinite regress inappropriate. Of the two most common cosmological metaphysical arguments due to Kalam and Leibniz, the first does require an end to an infinite regress, and hence a first cause. Dawkins, however, overlooks the Leibniz argument, which does not discuss infinite regress at all, nor require a first cause. The Leibniz argument argues that there must be an explanation for a particular state of affairs. It applies the principle of sufficient reason, and while it can be contested, it is nonetheless defendable. Dawkins dismisses the ontological metaphysical argument, which can be traced back to Anselm as infantile without identifying the defect in logic. And he is baffled that a philosopher like Bertrand Russell, whom he says is no fool, 
could take it seriously. Side note, I believe I have a counterexample to the logic in Anselm's argument, and I can identify his defect in logic. Dawkins asserts the cosmological argument is untrue without addressing its premises in a coherent way. The theologian Alistair McGrath and religious psychologist Joanna McGrath jointly wrote the book The Dawkins Delusion. They say Dawkins' book The God Delusion is perhaps Dawkins' weakest book to date, marred by its excessive reliance on bold assertion and rhetorical flourish where the issues so clearly demand careful reflection and painstaking analysis based on the best evidence available. Dawkins demands the eradication of religion. Alistair and Joanna McGrath go on to say, the question of the future role of religion is far too important to leave to the fanatics or the atheist fundamentalists. There is a real need to deal with the ultimate causes of social division and exclusion. Religion is in there along with a myriad of other factors, but it also has the capacity to transform, creating a deep sense of personal identity and value and bringing social cohesion. Let's skip the rhetoric and cut to the reality. It's much less simple, but it might help us address the real social issue that we face in our nation. The McGrath's book, The Dawkins Delusion, concludes with the suggestion that belief in God has rebounded, that Dawkins' work is more theater than scholarship and that the God delusion is little more than panic on the part of non-believers. In terms of panic, my own view is that the belligerents of the new atheists are hoping that their loud denunciation of God and religion will overwhelm the revelations of science that cast doubt on their worldview. The Dawkins delusion ends with these words, quotes, the fact that Dawkins relies so excessively on rhetoric rather than evidence clearly indicates that something is wrong with his case. Ironically, the ultimate achievement of the God delusion for modern atheism may be to suggest that this emperor has no clothes to wear. Might atheism be a delusion about God? In the article on the web, Alistair McGrath writes a section called How Not to Argue for Atheism. In it, McGrath quotes Dawkins having characterized the existence of God as a scientific claim, page 48, to be answered in terms of probability. McGrath says that this raises another set of tangential questions including the question, how exactly are numerical probabilities going to be derived from those at hand? After attempting to refute many arguments for the existence of God, 
Dawkins singles out the metaphysical design argument for longer and more detailed consideration. He says the argument from design is the only one still in regular use today and sounds to me like the ultimate knockdown argument. Young Darwin was impressed by it when, as a Cambridge undergraduate, he read it in William Paley's book, Natural Theology. Then Dawkins adds, unfortunately for Paley, the mature Darwin blew Paley's argument out of the water. I can't let Dawkins' last comment simply pass by without responding. First, there are a lot more arguments for the existence of God still in use today. There are also the Kalam cosmological, Leibniz contingency cosmological, the moral and the religious experience arguments. Alvin Plantinga gives an article from Class Notes entitled Two Dozen or So Theistic Arguments, which you can find on the internet. Ed Fazer improves upon five classical arguments. Peter Kreeft and Ronald Tuchelli list 20 arguments in their Handbook of Christian Apologetics. Robert J. Spitzer lists several arguments in New Proofs for the Existence of God. And in episode 54 and 55, I give a proof that the first cause of the universe is identical to the God of the Bible. Second, Darwin only blows out of the water Paley's version of the design argument, which is distinguished from other design arguments by the support for the premises. Side note, Paley gave a design argument using this scenario. If you were walking along and observed a rock, you wouldn't be surprised to see it there. But if you came across a watch, you would wonder why it was there. Even if you had never seen a watch before, you would be struck by its complexity and consider the maker of the watch to be very clever. That is, an intelligent designer. Paley suggests that it is reasonable to compare the natural world to the human eye or to a watch, as they clearly have design in common. Should not the maker of the world, being much more complex than the watch, also be an intelligent designer? Third, theistic arguments in the late 18th and 19th centuries did die out somewhat, and Darwin did contribute to the, that demise. But most of the atheist objections to theistic arguments are traceable to the writings of David Hume, and Immanuel Kant, and not to Darwin. And the rise of the scientific materialism worldview offered a comprehensive materialistic answer to the prime reality question of origins. By the beginning of the 20th century, the view of many skeptics, mimicking what Laplace said to Napoleon, was that there is no need for the God hypothesis. Fourth, the situation is different now. The book Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe by Stephen C. Meyer 
chronicles the reversal of the former view that held sway at the beginning of the 20th century. The three discoveries are, one, the beginning of the universe and the consequences of the Big Bang, two, the design of the so-called Goldilocks universe and the extreme fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe, and three, the design of life, DNA, and the origin of biological information. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.